Coming up, our last episode of Pod of the Planet, and boy, it is an action-packed episode. We speak with Phoebe Pearson, who runs uh, the Earth Institute's Instagram account, among many other things, along with Sarah Fecht, who is the manager of the State of the Planet blog, and we talk about highlights of 2020 with her. And last but not least is Charlotte Munson, who is an undergrad student at Columbia University, and she studies sustainable development, and we get her perspective on what campus life has been like uh, over the course of the year. I can't believe the end of the year is uh, actually finally here. It's been a wild ride for a part of the planet. We want to just thank all of our supporters and everyone who's still listening to this podcast. Uh, we appreciate all your feedback and we hope to see you in a healthy and happy new year. Welcome to Pod of the Planet, a podcast about our changing planet and what we're doing to manage that change. I'm Q Lee, your host, and I'm joined by three of my favorite colleagues at the Earth Institute, Phoebe, Sarah, and Charlotte. How are you guys today? Good. I'm doing great. Yeah. I know this is a big group. You guys have to like figure out a way how to like harmonize and come in right at the same time. <laughs> I know. I think right we, <laughs> we all took a beat there waiting for someone to start, figured no one else was going to do it, decided we would go first and happened to do it. Maybe Q, you should be specific about who you're talking to <laughs> <laughs> i'll do I that it's not like i've been doing this you know for a long time or anything so i, I yeah i gotta work on that okay so <laughs> thanks again guys for joining this episode it's the uh it's the end of the year episode so we got lots to talk about the feature of this episode is going to be an interview that phoebe did with uh, an author named sandra goldmark on her book fixation how to have stuff without breaking the planet and um, I would just say right off the bat, that's a pretty good uh, thing to think about. Um, and it's something we should we should all be thinking about, especially during this holiday season as we're shopping, uh, pressing buttons, clicking on things online and Amazon and so forth. Um, so the one thing, you know, I, I, I love the interview, Phoebe, and I thought you did an amazing job. And the biggest takeaway I got from it is that Sandra needs to get her own Netflix show like immediately and 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 something like that's about how to sustain a belies your, your home or something like that, where she just comes in and, and, and does all these things. I don't know. Do you, do you have like a big takeaway in general from, from what you, from your conversation? I mean, I would watch that show for sure. <laughs> I love that kind of show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I guess the, yeah, the big takeaway for me, I thought one of the great points that she made was about habit and turning these sort of sustainable behaviors into habits that are just a part of your daily life. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be hard to live sustainably and to um, take care of your stuff and prioritize fixing things and buying high quality things and buying secondhand um, over, you know, just replacing things quickly on, on Amazon or something like that. Um, I, I, I've experienced that in my own life. And so I thought it was a good, a good point. And I will also say, and we can talk about this later, but there is actually a Netflix show called the repair shop, which oh, okay. I have been watching. So if anyone wants to hear more about that, I have thoughts. And Sarah, you, you read the book too. Is there, you know, after reading it, is, do you feel like there's something dramatic that's going to change in your lifestyle at this point? 
Yeah, you know, actually, well, first off, I thought it was a really great book. Like, it's so funny and it's really story driven and also gives you like practical advice, which you don't get all the time from things like this. So I loved it. And it has made me start thinking about things differently. Like my husband and I, we just bought a, a pastry cutter, which mixes butter into a dough for like a pie crust. Mm-hmm. And I, I specifically chose one that looked like it could be fixed if it broke. So like, uh, this is one of the things that Sandra goes into in the book is certain products we buy have like proprietary screws in them. So if you want to take it apart and fix it, you just can't unless you have special equipment for it. So I've been thinking about things like that. And I noticed last week I have a hole in my shoes and I'm going to actually take them to get repaired instead of buying replacements as I usually do. So it's definitely giving me like better habits. Nice. And, and, you know, Charlotte hasn't read the book just yet, but Phoebe, maybe you could just uh, recant that kind of mantra, the mantra that, uh, that, that Sandra has, uh, what is it again? Oh yeah. I'll see if I can remember it. Um, it's have good stuff, not too much, take care of it, uh, pass it on. I think, I feel like I'm missing one. Something like that's, that. that's the idea. It's, it's based off of, um, Michael Pollan's food mantra, which is, um, eat, Oh no, someone else is going to have to do it. Sarah, do you know that one? Eat less and more vegetables or something like that, right? Eat food, food, mostly plants. Right. Uh, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Whatever, we know. Yeah, Yeah, it's a really great book. You should definitely check it out. And it's inspiring. I I agree with Sarah. Like it's it's inspiring. And um, I even, while I was reading the book, I had a situation where I had bought this like little rolling plant stand like a little dolly to put one of my heavier plants on Mm -hmm. and it broke while I was reading the book and um the plastic wheel broke off and I was like oh no it's because it's plastic and Sandra talks about that in the book about how plastic is one of the Mm -hmm. least repairable materials and you can Mm -hmm. kind of tell from looking at things that have plastic parts that they are not going to be easy to repair so I had to buy a replacement because I couldn't find the right kind of wheel um, to put back on. And so I bought a replacement that has wheels that screw off. So I can easily replace it if it breaks again. And, and Charlotte. Nice. I look forward to reading it. I have to say, actually, my family decided instead of exchanging Christmas gifts that we would all buy ourselves books from local <laughs> independent bookstores. And uh, that I chose to wrap all of my presents up for myself to <laughs> open. And I, I, that book is under my, well, it's under my fiddle leaf fig plant right now. Cause I don't have a tree, but I, I'm looking forward to checking it out, hearing such great reviews from you both. Yeah, definitely. And, and Charlotte, you know, the, one of the things uh, I thought was great about your interview, Phoebe, was how you guys also sort of tackled the question of, of this individual choice versus, large scale policies as if those things have to be mutually exclusive. Um, I was wondering, Charlotte, you're, you're an undergrad at, at Columbia and, and you study sustainable development there. Does that like topic come up uh, a lot in your, I don't know, in, in your work and your research? All the time. Yeah. yeah. It's actually, I think some people can get really cynical about it, which is, which is unfortunate. You know, it becomes almost a joke that uh, it's, it's pointless to switch out your light bulbs or, 
or recycle your aluminum cans because the real meaningful, impactful change can only come from the top down, come from policy driven solutions. And I really think that we can meet in the middle and that you need to have these top down policy driven solutions. Absolutely. But a lot of that starts with individual behavior change and a mindset and a sort of buy-in from the public. I mean, you vote during elections, you vote every day with your dollar. um, And those things, even if they don't add up to save the planet directly um, with carbon emissions or or something like that, you know, it's, it's shifting Mm -hmm. the the culture Mm -hmm. um, to something that will, will also lead to these large scale solutions is my hope. But yes, it, it definitely comes up in, in classes. Um, People have some really strong opinions on it. So. Yeah. I mean, and so much of what we talk, we're talking about here is like, a philosophy and a, and a lifestyle change and, and all that. But I did like BB the interview and how you talked about real practical things and things to look out for. And, and I was wondering, um, you know, you had, both you guys had mentioned like a few different companies, for example, that, that specialize in reclamation projects and, and all these things, you know, for me at home here, um, my, my wife, uh, you know, to her credit is a, kind of a bit of a nut when it comes to like our, our stuff and, and making sure that it doesn't end up in a, in a landfill somewhere. And, uh, and to our sort of detriment, a lot of stuff stays in our, in our apartment and it kind of like builds up and we try to find avenues and ways to, to get rid of it, whether it's at goodwill or, or getting, you know, handing it off to other people and same thing, you know, we're kind of like a, a funnel for a lot of things like, you know, children's clothes and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, have you, have you guys explored or thought like seen like a lot of these things like systematized in any like meaningful way, um, where people are kind of taking in old stuff and like putting it back out there or, or repairing things and and so forth, or like, are there really any resources that we should be thinking about uh, or looking at for, for these things? Yeah. I mean, I think there's, yeah, I think there's a lot of options out there and I don't, I don't have options for like every single thing, but, um, you know, obviously for, for clothing, I think that's the easiest one. There's, um, there's resale and you can, you know, donate to housing works or goodwill, or you can send it into threadup.com, um, which they do consignment as well as, um, just taking donations. Um, and they're like a big online thrift store basically. Um, Mm -hmm. and then if you're, clothing scraps or your, you know, rags, whatever are not wearable, you can actually textile recycle those and they will turn it into insulation a lot of the time, Mm -hmm. um, which I find really interesting. Um, and then, you know, I don't have great resources that I know of for repairing the way that Sandra did with her pop-up repair shops. Unfortunately, Mm um, I think that New York city is probably a good place to be looking for something like that because there are sort of these pockets of, of places that have been around forever that do that, like sewing machine repair and vacuum repair stores. And those places would probably be good spots to look. Um, and those, those folks that work there probably know how to repair other things too. 
But I mean, I know there used to be like a vacuum repair shop or sewing machine repair shop in my neighborhood when I was growing up on the Upper West Side. And that is no longer there. So I, I'm not sure exactly where to go for that. But every neighborhood has like a cobbler. Mm. They can repair your shoes. They can refurbish your bags. I brought purses to my local cobbler um, and they'll polish it up and it looks brand new, which is very satisfying. And I've gotten new soles put on shoes before, um, like Sarah was talking about. Um, it sounds very medieval, so I think, you know, like going to the cobbler. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the cobbler. They, I mean, they usually say shoe repair on them, not actually cobbler, but <laughs> technically that's what they are. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, there are options. If, if you have any specific items you're thinking about, I can try and help, uh, yeah. you know, see if I know of anything. Yeah. I think uh, I know you're preparing a post about all this too. And, um, it might be good just to have a bunch of resources, uh, in general that people can check out. So this is all to say, yeah, read Sandra Goldmark's book, Fixation, how to, sh- how to have stuff without breaking the planet. Um, I know I will be picking it up and reading it over this holiday. One of my things I want to do for, for the, uh, for the next year, just read more. Um, but before we get into the next year, uh, here, we want to talk with Sarah who manages the state of the planet blog. And just to talk a little bit about what we saw in, in 2020, um, outside of, I mean, we saw the coronavirus and, and the, obviously the ravaging effects that's, that's had on, on everything, but we wanted to take a, a bit, some time to highlight some of the interesting stories that have come out of the earth Institute. Sarah, did you want to start off with uh, what, what's what's sort of like top on your list? Sure. Let's start off with the bad news, which was one of our most popular stories. This is about um, how deadly combinations of heat and humidity are, mm-hmm. are, are sort of like emerging around the world. Um, so a few years ago, as background right now, um, our scientists predicted that heat and humidity combined could get so bad in the next century that it would be difficult to work without getting heat stroke. And, um, and what this study in May found was that actually that's already happening. Mm. So um, they found thousands of cases of like unprecedented bouts of extreme heat and humidity And this was across the world in Asia, Africa, Australia, North America, South America, et cetera. Pretty much like everywhere but Antarctica, I think. But (laughs) um, and part of the reason this story really went viral for us was because um, our colleague, Jeremy Hinsdale, created this really cool interactive map where you can scroll over and look at all of these like red, yellow and green dots and see where these really bad heat waves are happening. And it's different from a regular heat wave because if it's hot and dry, we all know that like, yeah, that can be rough and dangerous, but heat with humidity is always worse. And so. And and that study was led by who at the Earth Institute? um, It was um, Colin Raymond, who's a PhD student with Radley Horton at Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory. So I'll say one sort of good thing about this is that so far these outbreaks are happening in small areas and over short periods of time, but they are getting more frequent and more intense. So that's the concern. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I just, it, it, it could get worse from here. So it's important to take action on climate change, which is, of course, something we talk about every day here. 
Yeah. And, and definitely I just want to echo what you said, uh, check out the interactive map that Jeremy put together on the blog. It's, it's really cool. It points out all these places uh, around the world uh, that, that are suffering from, from these extreme conditions and something on, I guess it is obviously uh, coronavirus related. You, you, there was a story about uh, disinfecting masks, right? This came out early during, during the, um, the outbreaks. And uh, I thought it was a, a cool story just overall because you know we have a lot of amazing researchers and scientists throughout the earth institute that that focus and and do their work the coronavirus shifted a lot of that and and changed uh people's um i guess not only approach but just what they were working on and so do you want to tell us a little bit about um who these researchers were and and what uh what they were able to find sure so this study was led by I don't know if I'm going to say all of these names correctly, but Roland Yan, Steve Chilrud, Deborah Magadini, and Bejan Yang. <laughs> um, and so it's it's really cool because it's sort of like a news you can use kind of story. The reason they did this was because this was when there was a really big masks shortage. And um, they wanted to see if you can safely disinfect and reuse the masks without ruining them. So they already knew based on previous research that you could uh, warm, you could like heat for 30 minutes at 158 degrees Fahrenheit could kill the virus. Like we knew that already. Mm. So these researchers were asking, but will it ruin my mask if I put it in the oven? (laughs) Um, So they tested this in a a really kind of (laughs) neat way. They put the masks onto mannequin heads and had them like simulate breathing. So what they would do first is like they would disinfect the mask in the oven and then see how many of these like virus sized particles got through into the mannequin's mouth or whatever. <laughs> and what they found was that a lot of certain brands of the mask could actually go through at least 10 cycles of the heat disinfection without compromising the integrity of the mask. So it's, there's a little bit of a sustainability bent here. You can yeah. <laughs> disinfect them and reuse them safely, keeping in mind that if there are any rips or tears or anything like that, you definitely should not use that mask. Charlotte, uh, how many different masks do you have and are you using them when you uh, attend or go to, go to school? Absolutely. I'm using my mask. Um, Columbia, the campus is actually doing a really great job uh, with its response to the virus and masks are required. But I use the library probably three times a week Mm. on campus. So I have quite an assortment and I am lucky to have a lot of handmade ones from my mother, who's a really talented seamstress and uses fabric scraps from around the house to uh, make make these masks for for her family. Very cool. um, but I definitely don't bake mine in an oven. Uh, I do wash them on hot though. <laughs> yeah. I think that makes total sense to wash them in hot water and with soap as long as they're fabric. And um, so this study was specifically looking at surgical masks and the special N95 uh, ones. Mine are not, I mean, they're very special to me. Uh, my <laughs> mom had made me this great one. She embroidered flowers all over it. So uh <laughs> truly, truly lovely. I, I pick them to go with my outfits. Yeah, yeah. don't bake that. <laughs> I don't bake them. Um, I actually, my uh, friend and I dressed up for Halloween as characters from Toy Story, and I went as the Slinky Dog, and my mom made me a mask 
that looks like slinky dog's face with the nose and the, and the mouth on it. Um, so it was kind of, it was kind of fun to, uh, have a whole holiday where wearing a mask is part of the outfit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so the, the last thing that uh, from the blog, Sarah, it was a piece that you wrote, right. About we're looking ahead, um, not next year, but hundreds of millions of years in the future, right. On, on, uh, on a potential supercontinent. Uh, you want to tell us what that, that story is about? Yeah. So part of the reason I really enjoyed writing about this was because it's like, it's taking place 200 million years in the future, which I don't have a stake in. So I can just like relax and not worry about doom and gloom. But um, so everybody's probably heard of Pangea back when all of the continents were smooshed together into one landmass. They drifted apart into what we see today. But apparently they're going to smoosh back together again, like 200 million years in the future, maybe 250, something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, we don't quite know how they're going to be arranged when that happens. And so this study looked at like, what is the, what, hmm, let me try to rephrase that. So this study looked at how different arrangements of the supercontinent could influence climate in the future. Mm And they looked at two kinds of land masses and they have a uh, really cool like mashup name. So the first one is called Amasia. <laughs> so you can guess that's like a mashup of America and Asia. So what it looks what like on the, the map. What the rest of the continents like Africa <laughs> and Australia? They're there. They're just not in the name. So uh, like all of the continents except Antarctica get pushed up to the North Pole in this scenario. And then Antarctica pretty much stays where it is kind of like a loner out there. I mean, it could be like Amerifica Eurasia. Still, yeah. No, you can't like put them all together in one word. No. I guess that's not a good idea. Well, you could, but then the other continent they looked at was called Orica, and that is a total mashup of all of the continents. So then you could give it the, the same name technically, like almost, right? <laughs> so, um, so what they found was... Does that mean that everyone who, like all the beings who potentially are going to be around are going to be called uh, Omer- Americans or something like that? or Probably Amasians. <laughs> Amasians. Or Oricans. Pangeans. Yeah. Yeah, cool. we can. I mean, we can discuss it in two hundred million years, but <laughs> we got some time. But it it was interesting because how these continents end up rearranging themselves will have a pretty big impact on the global climate. So, like, if Orica, which is that mashup of all of the continents, including Australia, and that that would come together around the equator, sort of, mm-hmm. if. If that happens instead of Amasia, where all the lands at the poles, it's going to be a lot hotter. Um, mm-hmm. Because the, it it has partly to do with where the land is, because we, as we know, at higher latitudes near the poles, it tends to be colder, whereas the equator is warmer just naturally because of how the sun's radiation hits the earth. But also the ocean currents get disrupted. Um, the amount of ice at the poles plays a major role in how cold it is as well, because it's reflecting heat back into space. So, mm-hmm. so it turns out that with Orica, which is everything jammed together around the equator, it would be about um, three degrees warmer across the entire globe. Mm-hmm. Um, and the scientist I spoke with said that if he had to choose Amasia versus Orica, he would choose Orica because it would probably be beachier. <laughs> 
So All that right. one has my vote as well. <laughs> it sounds like a sci-fi novel to me. I don't know. Mm-hmm. In the making. Um, very cool. So, okay. And so that wraps up this episode of Pod of the Planet. Uh, everyone have a happy new year. Happy holidays to you guys. I hope to see your faces without, um, you know, whether it's masked or, or otherwise in, in the future, maybe not uh, in, in, a, in Orica or anywhere else, but sooner than that. And um, have a great one. Thank you. Thank you. Happy Thank holidays. You okay. Bye guys. And happy new year. Happy new year. Bye-bye. Bye. I'm joined today by Sandra Goldmark, a theater professor and director of campus sustainability at Barnard College. I first met Sandra in 2013 or 14 when I was managing Grow NYC Farmers Markets. Her pop-up repair shop set up periodically at the Columbia Green Market at 114th and Broadway, which I was managing at the time. So Sandra recently released her book titled Fixation, which is all about our relationship with the stuff that we buy and use. Welcome, Sandra, and thanks for talking with me. Thanks, Phoebe. It's nice to see you. You as well. Um, So just to get started, um, you began as a set designer and a professor for the Barnard Theater Department. How did you come to your current position as director of campus sustainability at Barnard? Right. Slash repair shop owner. Yeah. Um, uh, So on the surface, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But if you dig a little deeper, um, as a set designer for many years, my job was to work with stuff, right? To create meaning on stage with space and the objects in it. Um, So another big part of the job of a set designer, unfortunately, is creating a lot of waste. Almost every design that you make goes sooner or later, usually sooner into the dumpster. So my work in theater led me down this path to really thinking about questions of consumption, of waste, um, of circularity eventually as a solution, and um, the role of consumption in climate change. So somewhere over the past 10 to 12 years, I got really fired up about that in terms of theater, um, coming up with sort of circular economy solutions for our theater practices. started the repair shops, which was a kind of same thing, real world example, what kind of real world applied solutions can we take from these lessons of of design and and circular economy and even theater. And all of that ultimately fed back into this work on campus of of thinking about climate action on campus. Um, And having worked across these disciplines for so many years, it made me feel very strongly that actually that, that that's a useful tool for solving problems, that it's good to have people working on these things from all different departments and all different perspectives. Um, So that has really fed into my work at Barnard. We're looking at climate action um, from as many angles as we can with as many people in the room as we can. And yeah, it's strange. It it all started in the theater. (laughs) Great. So tell me a little bit about your um, pop-up repair shop. And maybe while you're doing that, you could tell us if you have a repair that stands out as your favorite or that is particularly memorable? Yeah. So for the the kind of context, we started um, running these little short-term repair shops all over New York City. We were often at green markets where we met you. We would People would bring us all kinds of broken items. We accepted everything from like lamps and appliances and furniture to toys and textiles and ceramics. Um, 
And it was an experiment. It was an experiment into this question of would people pay for these services? How much would they pay? How could we tinker and um, disrupt the traditional business model of repair to make it sustainable and, and viable in a kind of, in, in New York, very expensive city. Um, and so we ran these short-term shops for seven years. We did more than a dozen shops and dozens of educational events. So all of that is like the background for the book. But as you mentioned, there were a lot of really specific objects, 2,500 of them to be exact, that came through our shops. And it was funny because on the one hand, there, be, there did come to be a pattern, a repetitiousness of like, you know, here's another lamp, here's another broken blender. Um, but in another funny way, every little object was unique and told a story. And that that's really what led to the book is that that understanding of like the similarities and the themes, but also the individuality. And for me, in answer to your question of what I liked to do best in the shop, I really loved the paint touch-ups. I, um, as you know, I'm a set designer originally and within set design, I really quite loved scenic painting. Um, so touching up you know, things like ceramics or wood stains or jewelry, or I remember this little kid's stool. It was like a yellow stool with a painting of a tiger on the top. And I, it was, we fixed the leg, but then it was all chipped. So I like touched up the top. And um, those jobs were really satisfying the paint touch-ups. First of all, it's very soothing for me. It's like a, a, a hard job that for me is easy, which is always fun. I love painting. And there's something really satisfying about like the kind of invisibility of the mend when you're done. Some people in the repair world love visible mending, which can be very cool and very beautiful. But I think my sort of theater illusionist heart really loves these, you know, you hold up the bowl and the crack is completely camouflaged. So I love the paint touch-ups. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. I love that invisibility also. It's, it's like magic. Um, so in your book, um, you discuss a broad range of topics. I mean, as you sort of mentioned, um, the way that you're approaching sustainability at Barnard, um, you discuss a range of things from sustainable agriculture to set design, obviously, to furniture production with the way that IKEA does things, to the waste cycle and end of life, to even world religion and philosophies. Um, so can you talk a little bit about like the common threads that kind of tie all of that together throughout the book? Yeah. I mean, I guess the obvious common thread is stuff or consumption, you know, whichever term you prefer. Um, and what that means for me, the reason I guess I have so many threads is I really, I felt like after all these years in the repair shop that we needed to look at it as this really incredibly complex and rich topic that it is. Like, you can talk about stuff and consumption from a climate change perspective and talk about all the damage that we're doing, and that is in the book. But I, I felt like in order to talk about solutions or a way out, you have to understand the, the problem from all the different perspectives. So, so you have to really see and understand stuff, like what it's doing in our lives. Because if you look around, it's everywhere. It, like right now, look, you are wherever you are, whoever is listening, you are, I guarantee you, surrounded by objects made by humans. Even if you're in the woods right now, somehow listening to this podcast, you are dressed in clothing, you are making a campfire, which was likely that you are using tools to do so. In fact, 100% sure. <laughs> so it is stuff, are, the things we make, are the products of, of our hands is so central to who we are as a species, to who we are as individuals. And it's also really central to the climate change problem because it is so monumental. 
So what I'm trying to do in the book is acknowledge the vastness and the complexity of this topic, right? On the personal level, on a business level, on a scientific climate change level, on a policy level, appreciate the problem. And I shouldn't even call it a problem. Appreciate this, this category of our humanity, right? And then um, understand that like food, the other sort of major component in our survival and a major component of our identity Stuff is, is something that we can do better and that the path forward can be kind of simple. Um, that it is a big problem. It is a big source of emissions. Um, we need to really see it. We need to really understand it. And to do that, you can start right where you are. Look around and really understand what's around you um, and then move forward. Yeah, I definitely agree. One thing that I just thought of while you were talking is um, you talk a lot in the book about sort of like respect for our stuff, which I think is something that, you know, I don't see talked about a lot. And I think it's really important to sort of the the thesis of your book. You know, we can't really move ahead and try to get past our sort of like clogged planet if we don't understand that, you know, we need stuff. It is essentially a part of who we are as humans and yeah, I think I think that really hit on something for me where I was sort of like, oh, yes, we need to understand this. We need to respect it in order to be able to solve this problem. Yeah, I think that's why in my earlier answer, I was like kind of shying away from this idea of the problem, because while there are a lot of problems with stuff, I also think that, again, just like food, if it becomes sort of this stigmatized, awful thing, we're missing part of the equation, which is that it's a blessing. It's a joy. It could, it can be a blessing and a source of joy, right? And it's certainly essential to our survival. In sort of dealing with the problem, particularly for, for you know, uh, an American, many, most Americans today, which is really um, who the book is, well, or, or or most people living today with kind of economic level of, of consumption where they are probably dealing with a problem of excess as, a, as opposed to a problem of scarcity, because that's where we are. Just again, just like food, even at lower socioeconomic levels in this country, there's sometimes more of a problem of excess of cheap stuff calories and cheap, low quality food and stuff calories, as opposed to actual scarcity of calories. So, um, the problem we're facing today in this country is, is one of excess and it is one of our kind of technological capacity to fulfill our appetites. We love food. We love stuff that's, that's like totally natural. And we have built a system that can satisfy every appetite to the not to the, you know, to the nth degree in a heartbeat. And that's actually where the problem lies is the capacity that we've built to satisfy our appetites. The appetites themselves are totally normal and sensible and and frankly fine, quite, quite lovely, you know, like go enjoy your meal, enjoy your home, be grateful for it. Um, it's, it's the, our problem today in many ways is how do we build a system that isn't like over satisfying our very natural appetites, I think. And we used to, you know, historically and still in certain traditional cultures, it was easier to kind of live in balance. Um, but those traditional, patterns and, and habits surrounding stuff are being decimated as we start to export our patterns of consumption worldwide, just like traditional languages, just like traditional diets, the traditional sort of um, ways of living with the physical world are, are also being diminished by the kind of, by globalization, I suppose. 
Yeah, in the book, you do um, go into some of these different cultures and different religions that um, have a different view or perspective of how humans relate to the physical world. Can you talk a little bit about some of those cultures and how they're different from the sort of Western capitalist culture that we live in? The chapter where I really sort of go there is this chapter, we got three objects in the shop. So the the first object we got that goes into that chapter was a sign called, uh, it says, Deus nobis hic otia fecit, fecit. I don't even know how to pronounce it. Um, and it means, it's the city motto of Liverpool, I believe, and it means God gave these comforts to us. And so that object, I use it to open up a discussion about basically Judeo-Christian theology and how it informed different ways that it informs our understanding of our relationship with the physical world. Like, do we see the earth and everything in it as a, an object separate from us, something that we may have dominion over? So we, I, I'm trying to explore like that Judeo-Christian tradition and how it informs some of our, our, our policies and our attitudes, especially in the United States, our relationship with the physical world. I look at an object called, oh, then it's the Bhagavad Gita. So my friend Amla brought us seven Bhagavad Gitas and I use those as a way to discuss some of the, the many multiple ways that Hinduism approaches um, nature and the, our relationship with the other. And then the chi revitalizer is the third object, which is um, a little bit of an opening into Taoism. And obviously in this book, it's not that long. I can't go into all of them, but it was really fun for me to begin to just use these objects to look at a slightly different perspective or a slightly different lens on how we might um, see ourselves and understand our relationship to, to, to objects, to the other in the form of an object. Yeah. I, I loved that section of the book and it in some ways was very refreshing to read about, um, you know, this isn't the way that we have to think about things. This isn't the relationship that we have to have with our stuff. The danger is that you can get into like, you know, I didn't do Buddhism, right? I didn't go into the question of like, materialism is bad, which that's way oversimplifying. But um, the danger is, of course, I'm not trying to say in the book that we should like, revere our object or idolize them. It's just a question of um, seeing them and appreciating them and having an understanding, basically, that we're in relationship with them. Right. That it's not and it's not like, you know, sometimes it's not a big deal. It's just a fork. It's just a notebook. Like you use it, you recycle it, you pass it on, whatever. But to to understand and see that relationship, I think, is kind of the point of the book. And to understand that, like, we're not disconnected. It's not just these mute, random surroundings we live in, but that they are contributing to this bigger story. So. When I worked at the green market, um, my friends and my coworkers at the market and I, and I'm sure you experienced this to a certain extent because you were, you were there, you were out there with us. Um, we used to talk about how working at the farmer's market is a lifestyle. Um, and obviously there is the, you know, early rising, um, physical labor, enduring weather year round, um, which are all part of that. But we were also talking about bringing our own bags and reusable containers cooking at home with whatever it was that the farmers had left over to give us, composting all of our food scraps and reducing our waste wherever possible. And that lifestyle has really stuck with me, even though I no longer work at the markets, obviously. Um, and I felt like your book really hit on aspects of that, quote, lifestyle um, and way of thinking about 
food and waste and stuff in general. And the book in a lot of ways reads like a very accessible philosophy book. So you discuss our relationship with stuff from spiritual as well as practical environmental perspective. We, we did hit a little bit on the spiritual side of things. Um, but can you talk a little bit about like your personal lifestyle and how this um, guides your philosophy a little bit and sort of how you've arrived at the lifestyle that you currently live? Yeah, I'm very familiar with the the farmer's market lifestyle, the getting up early. For me, it was like lugging broken objects all over the city at the crack of dawn in the icy cold. <laughs> it's a lifestyle. But it is, it's funny, like there's another layer to that that I do think about, which I think has to do with sort of habit and physicalizing or internalizing certain habits. Like I don't think really every time I now when I throw something in the compost. Do you know what I mean? Like I just started composting at some point and now it feels weird to not do it. Like actually when New York canceled compost, um, it was like disgusting to me to put my trash, my food scraps right in the regular trash. Like it was so gross in there. And thank God my farmer's market now has compost back. So like all is well in my trash can. (laughs) It was so funny how disruptive it was. And it was not like, because I'm an environmentalist and doing climate change, it was just because it was a break in my habit. And it was this physical action that had started to feel really normal and, and healthy. So yeah, I think there's a huge part of the book that is maybe embracing that and saying, there's a way to just begin like, like all habits, you do have to get there, you know, but then it's just a kind of can become like a thing that you do. And I think I'm trying to help people see that the steps to, to, to deal with stuff more sustainably are, are not complicated. And like food, you can kind of get there over time. And then there's a part of the book that's also speaking to businesses to saying, Hey, here's how you can support those steps, like make it easier for people to take those steps, right. That to remove some of the barriers. But like the lifestyle thing for stuff, yeah, I guess. So I I leaned a lot on the food movement, actually. Like the farmer's market is a good analogy because the food movement is more advanced than what I call the stuff movement. Um, It's more firmly established in the kind of zeitgeist or the collective consciousness that what you eat and how you eat impacts the planet, impacts your health, impacts communities around the world. And so I tried to consciously build on that and say, hey, stuff is just like food. And just like you can have a healthy food uh, way of living, you can have a healthy stuff way of living. It's not a fad diet. It's not like a restrictive, horrible, um, you know, thing that you're going to have to change every few days. It's this little plan. And so I, on purpose, borrowed from Michael Pollan, the food writer, because I love his work. And I, you know, sort of wanted to consciously build on that and show people how it's similar. So I lay out these five steps. So Michael Pollan said for food, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. So I did for stuff, have good stuff, not too much, mostly reclaimed, care for it, pass it on. And like, that's it. That's the, that's, those are the steps. And then there's all kinds of details within it, but that's really all you have to remember. (laughs) So I suspect some of our listeners are people who already live a similar lifestyle, um, if you're interested in sort of the climate movement and sustainability, chances are you've gotten to some of this yourself already. But a lot of people have good intentions um, towards the climate and towards the environmental movement, but may not see a connection between 
the climate crisis and, for instance, their own shopping habits. Um, so you emphasize in fixation how easy it is to buy new rather than repair or buy secondhand um, and how it's free to throw things away, which we don't really think about as being odd because it's just how things are. But, um, it, you know, if it wasn't free, we would probably throw a lot less stuff out. Um, and the incentives just really aren't there to adopt this sort of low waste and circular lifestyle that you're suggesting. So working against that, I guess, how do you think we can, uh, quote, enlighten people um, so that we can see the importance of their individual choices within larger systemic problems? I'm going to just share a quote from the book. Um, You say that not taking individual actions, quote, denies each of us a place in the world. If our actions are part of the problem, then they must be part of the solution, end quote. So what's your advice for putting for people wanting to make a difference and be a part of this solution? I think in that section of the book that you're quoting, I'm glad you brought this up because it's such an important question. And I think I'm, I was reacting to sometimes I see in the kind of climate action movement, this it's almost like a little fight between people being like individual actions don't matter. Individual actions do matter or, you know, the even more reductive version is it's kind of like it's all the corporation's fault. And I just like those, that whole kind of thing just leaves me totally cold because, uh, or worse, because <laughs> I, I personally think that, or sometimes I'll hear things like, well, we don't need to make, we don't need to change individual actions. What we need is systemic change as if there's like a dichotomy or uh, as if the two are not related. And for me, I just, I don't understand that because to me, they're all related. They're all levels of detail of zoom on the problem. Like I could zoom way out and talk about a systemic problem. I can zoom way in and talk about an individual's actions. If I'm only looking at one, I think I'm missing a part of the picture. Um, I think that um, we have to look at all of the kind of levels of, of, of engagement. So in the book, I try, I am speaking to individuals to try to make them feel like, yes, you can take action and yes, it matters. And yes, here's how it connects to the bigger picture. And yes, don't stop there. Like, so as you mentioned, there are a lot of policies and business practices that would make it a lot easier for people to live these lifestyles. And that's really what we need because we need it to become the default. We need it to become easy. We don't, we can't wait around for people to like heroically choose to, you know, repair their blenders instead of buy a new one. It needs, it does need to become part of the system, but taking individual action is part of getting there for me. And businesses, I think, have a huge role to play, especially in this particular arena of stuff and consumption, because they are, um, they, they have just such huge play in this field. You know, it's not, it's not only going to be in terms of policy. We have, businesses have to really change their core business models, which is a a big ask, but I actually think it's doable and believable. (laughs) Yeah. And one of, one of the companies that you mentioned in the book, who's, that's done this, you know, to some degree of success is, is Patagonia. Um, I think it's such an interesting case study, the way that they've evolved over the years. You know, we've, we've sort of always thought of them as being an eco-friendly uh, company that's championing the environment, but, you know, they started out mostly just selling new stuff. Um, and then only throughout the years have they taken a closer look at their supply chain and really cleaned stuff up and now started to actually sell repaired items, which is exactly what you're sort of saying, like close the loop and um, 
Yeah. And I also think that the other thing to keep in mind that I always think of when, when I hear this debate in the climate movement about individual action versus, you know, policies and, and corporations being the problem is that if you're relying on this to become a, a top-down decision, it's just never going to happen. Yeah. And, and you're ceding all your power. Exactly. Like, and if you aren't participating in the solution and showing these corporations, you know, by, you know, the term like voting with your wallet um, or actually voting <laughs> with your ballot, um, then, you know, why are, why are they going to make a change? They're responding to, to exactly. a market. Everybody waits, everybody points at the other. So, so the, you know, an individual can say, well, a corporation needs to do it, you know, or a corporation can say, but there's no demand among the consumers. I'm, you know, I've heard people in business say there's no demand. We can't do this. Or the policymakers will say, well, there's no support for this. So in fact, I think individual action is incredibly important because that's where you build at the community level. You go from the individual, you go to the farmer's market, you go to the community board, you go to the schools. That's where you actually get a kind of culture shift um, and then, and what happens is it goes back and forth between the spheres of individual, corporate, and policy. You can see it with the bag bans, right? Like now we have this bag policy in New York, which is poor things struggling along while everybody, you know, with COVID and everybody tries to find ways to get around it. But the policy was passed. But that policy, which is amazing and is going to have so much impact, was also built on a hell of a lot of individual actions. And a hell of a, lot of a lot of activism and community organizing, and will be supported and scaled and facilitated by businesses kind of figuring out how to make it work from their perspective. So you you really need all of them, um, and I and I that's why I get distressed when I hear people sort of saying like, oh, you know, don't talk to individuals. Why not? Why would I only talk to you know one segment of society? Yeah. And, you know, of course, individuals make up all segments of society. Exactly. So. They're, who, who's, who's, who's writing the policies? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. So we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, Sandra will get into a little bit more of the details of the five segments that she's divided her book into and guide us through um, what these different principles have to do with our everyday lives. We'll be back in a minute. So for our last segment, Sandra has prepared a sort of audio tour around her apartment for listeners to get a sense of how the five concepts that she covers in her book Fixation apply to everyday home life. So Sandra, can you tell us how this is going to work? So I'm going to basically use a few objects around the house to illustrate some of the concepts of the book, especially these five steps, which is have good stuff, not too much, mostly reclaimed, care for it and pass it on. Okay. I actually don't have to move for the first object um, because the first step is, is have good stuff, right? So the basic concept here is that when you buy something new, that should be rare, i.e. you're not buying new stuff very often. But when you do, it should be quote unquote good. So that section of the book is like, well, what makes an object good? How do you think about sustainable sourcing and ethical production? Um, what about longevity repair? What kind of materials is the object made of? Um, and the objects that I thought we could use to illustrate and talk a little bit about good stuff is actually tech. 
computers, digital objects. So I don't have to move at all because I'm in my kind of Zoom wormhole here or Zoom lair <laughs> where I spend all my days now. Um, and I'm surrounded by tech gadgets and cords and wires, as is probably a lot of people who are listening to this. Um, and I'm, t- I'm talking about the tech products as an, in, when we talk about good stuff, because largely, sadly, it's kind of illustrating in the negative, if you know what I mean, like it's hard to find quote unquote good tech products. Um, and because tech is such a big part of our lives today and such a big part of our waste, our emissions, and such a big part of the, the stuff problem, actually. Um, so to give you a sense of it, uh, I'm, I, well, we could talk about my phone, for example, which is an iPhone. I think it's a seven. I don't even know. Um, there are currently 1.4 billion Apple devices active worldwide, or that was in 2019. So it's probably more now. Um, 77% of Apple's emissions come from manufacturing. 77%, right? This is a huge number. Um, and that's kind of one of the cornerstone concepts when we think about buying new is to understand that the massive, uh, overwhelming impact of stuff comes from new manufacturing. It's from the extraction of resources, the manufacture of the product, the distribution. It's not from the use and it's not from the waste in the landfill. It's from manufacturing. So you can see it in Apple with 77% of the company's whole footprint comes from manufacturing. When you look at the object itself, so I picked the iPhone because um, Apple is such a kind of, has been sort of such a a dominant player in the design world in the past 10 to 20 years, like really defining what's attractive, what's quality, what's beautiful, what's a good design, right? When you think about good design, um, you dig a little deeper. Right now, Apple is, is really informing our notion of what's good in the sense that it's beautiful and sleek and of course has like amazing functionality and does amazing things. At the same time, there are some things to look for in terms of a good product that you sometimes might not find. For example, repairability. Um, Apple has uh, some real lemons in that category. My phone, for example, is not too bad. It gets a, iFixit is a company that has a repairability scorecard on their website and I get, my phone gets a seven out of 10 for repair, which is not terrible. But um, the MacBook Pro that I'm writing on gets a one out of 10 for repairability, very bad, and three out of 10 for an iPad. So the idea here is to begin to think about good um, as more than just like beautiful, sleek, and well-functioning, but to expand that to include repairability, which means ease of access. Can you open it? Or does it have those little proprietary screws so you can't open it? Um, is there any sense of who made it and how much they were paid when you buy the product? Is there any clear sense of what goes into it? Um, for most electronics today, it, that is the answers are going to be no there. Um, so unfortunately my illustration of good stuff is a little bit by showing you something that's not great stuff. (laughs) No, I think that's perfect. Um, and actually I, I wanted to, I wanted to tell you about an item of my own that I had a recent experience with that um, is not something I thought of as a bad item, but it turns out is not it's not good design. So I bought this little rolling plant stand. It was just, you know, a little like wooden 
thing with casters on it. And the wood was bamboo. So I thought, you know, that's a renewable resource. That's great. Mm -hmm. Um, And I ordered it from Wayfair, which is just like, you know, the Amazon of furniture. Um, So not great, but it was exactly what I was looking for. It was so easy. So I bought it and it broke recently. Um, One of the um, plastic casters broke off. And I thought, okay, well, I've just read this whole book about fixing things. Let's see if I can fix it. Mm. And I didn't get very far because if you try and replace a caster, there's just like a trillion different kinds for one thing. And the other thing is that I managed to get the plastic part off, but the metal bit that sticks into the caster was stuck inside the wood section. It was glued in in a way that just would not come out. So even if I had gotten the new caster, it comes with a new one of those metal things. I wouldn't have been able to install it. So yeah, glue, plastic and glue. So I basically abandoned it and ordered a nicer, better. uh, Well, what you are pointing out there is, um, is a couple of things, which is uh, material choice, right? Like if you see a plastic part that's going to be under stress in your object, it's a little red flag. And also um, design for repairability. Like if that caster leg could have been screwed in instead of glued or something to make it yeah, possible. Yeah, that's, that's what I took in mind when I was ordering a new one. I actually bought one that had screw-in casters that were made of metal and rubber rather than just plastic. Yeah, that's so, good. Anyway, I learned something. So you, you still have to find the part, which is the third part of the challenge. <laughs> we'll get to that when we get to the kitchen. All right, I'm going to take you to the bedroom, the kids' room. So then step two. So step one was have good stuff, right? When you buy new, it's rare, and hopefully it's good. And step two is not too much. So this is very simple. It doesn't take long. Here's the audio of the clutter. (laughs) That's the Legos, the endless Legos. So I went to the kids' room because for many people who are like, you know, trying to deal with their stuff, the the kids' room uh, can be a challenge in terms of clutter and and, uh, overwhelm. And I also want to acknowledge that this is a reality. This is something many people deal with. Um, And just point out how interesting it is today that we do live in this moment, this era of excess. And, and we also have this weird, like cultural fascination with that excess. Like if you look at Marie Kondo or TV shows like Hoarders, we're, we're sort of fascinated with watching shows that are struggling with that, that feeling of overwhelm. Some of them are aspirational, like Marie Kondo or like a queer eye makeover where it's like, oh, beautiful home. And some of them are sort of like schadenfreude, like Hoarders. Oh my God, thank God that, you know, there, but for the grace of God, go I. Um, And it sort of shows that we're coping with this excess of empty stuff calories or trying to cope with it. So in the not too much category, one of the sort of things that I actually wanting to do is just acknowledge and help people put down any feelings of like shame or I should be doing this or I should be doing that. Like this is a thing. Everybody struggles with it. Even people like me who just wrote a book about consumption, like, you know, (laughs) tripping over things in the hall. And I think that is actually an important part to realize, like, this excess is something that we have to deal with in the moment we're living in. And that the first step is sort of trying to pause and be like, hmm, maybe I don't need this thing. Maybe I don't need to buy this. And that that's a really important step. It's so hard, especially this time of year. I know. The gift thing is a really interesting 
again, I'm so like, I feel like I'm beating a dead horse with my food analogies, but like everybody says like, don't go on a diet right before the holidays. Right. And in some ways, I don't believe in dieting, but I do believe in the wisdom of that of like, maybe don't try to tackle your stuff, healthy lifestyle right before you have to like go give and receive 600 presents. (laughs) Maybe not the holidays. A, there's a lot of like gift giving that just feels obligatory. It's so emotionally fraught. Um, There are some ways to make it easier, but it's a tough one. Gifts are a tough one. Yeah. And on top of that, I think that there's a real stigma when it comes to giving something that is secondhand. I mean, you know, I think if it's like a rare and expensive vintage find, that's one thing, but no one's really going to love it if you give them something from like Goodwill. But that's not to say that you can't find great things at Goodwill. I do all the time. Well, that is like actually, I think a great first step is in terms of dealing with that sort of emotional landscape of stuff. Like people have now fully gotten into the experience thing, right? They'll give an experience as a gift. Whereas even actually when that started, if you think back, it was kind of like, oh, some people felt the need to like give a gift with their experience, you know, (laughs) but now experience gift giving is like, oh, that's a thing. We're comfortable with that. And I think you're right that easing into giving used is a nice way into Rather than saying, which I've tried this a million times, it doesn't work. I don't want any gifts this Christmas. Please don't give me any gifts. And I'm not going to give you any. Like that does not work as a strategy I have learned. (laughs) But you can sort of be like, I love used things. It doesn't just have to be vintage. Here's some things I need. I've sort of taken to even like sending people links to some of the great online places where you can buy used to be like, here's, here's the really easy place you can get this used thing. So it is a little bit of a gateway to kind of open the conversation. <laughs> and it and it's also a way to sort of induct some people into some of the more online resources for buying secondhand, exactly. that kind of stuff. This is a perfect segue to our next object, which is a shirt, um, a plaid shirt in my closet. And it's going to stand in for our mostly reclaimed step, which is step three. The idea being... This The analogy here is Michael Pollan's step, mostly leaves or mostly plants. The idea here being that um, you need to rebalance your stuff diet. So if you were eating mostly bacon and cookies, now you should be eating mostly plants. And if you were eat, you know, buying mostly new things from, no offense, Wayfair and Amazon, <laughs> you can begin to try to move towards um, buying more and more used things as a percentage, not on top of your existing diet, right? You don't eat the bacon and cookies and then leaves on top. You rebalance the percentage of what you're buying. So, and the reasons to do this are really big. They have to do with, again, that impact from manufacturing. In terms of reducing the carbon footprint of your stuff, buying used is the number one easiest, most impactful thing that you can do, buying new instead of used instead of new. Um, So if you look at this one shirt, The savings from not making a new shirt is estimated at 2.5 kilograms of CO2 equivalent, which is the carbon absorbed by 127 trees in one day. So I don't know if that's a lot or a little. It doesn't seem like a huge amount. But if you think about the 880 million shirts uh, purchased in America in one year, that's a lot of carbon. So the other reason I really spend a lot of time thinking about buying used is that this is something that people already do. This is not a new concept. People have a lot of emotions about it, but if you can begin to think about, okay, where do I feel comfortable buying shopping used? What types of items do I feel comfortable buying used? And expand from there. It's actually not that hard to kind of increase your percentages pretty radically. 
So for example, many people feel quite comfortable doing used baby gear for some reason. That's just like an easy category. Some people have no problem with used clothing. Some people are not so comfortable with clothing. Whatever your category is, start there and expand from there. That's great advice. Um, and actually, it brings up a question for me. I'm, I'm wondering how, I mean, I assume your family is very on board with buying used and um, fixing things. And your husband is involved in, was involved in the, the pop-up repair um, and fix it stuff. Have you sort of seen a change outside your immediate family as well? How does that look for, for your immediate surrounding family? I mean, my family knows, my extended family knows that I'm all into this, but um, I have definitely have some friends who have been like, oh, I can start doing this. It's not that hard. There's many people out there who are already sort of devoted thrifters and buyers of used stuff. And in fact, it's really taking off like way beyond my circle. Like resale is growing in clothing 21 times faster than traditional retail, which is crazy if you think about it. So there is a kind of movement happening. But I think the real key, and I talk about this a lot in the book, the real key is that the traditional businesses need to incorporate reuse and repair into their business models. Because until then, we still have what I call the fire hose of stuff, the Amazons, the Wayfarers, the um, targets that everybody who are sh- manufacturing and selling this huge fire hose of new goods. And so those companies need to sort of reduce the pressure of that fire hose by diversifying their business model. And they will, because they're seeing all these startups who are achieving better sales growth than they are. So I think they will start to do it. It's just, you know, that's really a key part of the equation. Um, so you mentioned the kitchen. Is that our next stop? Uh-huh. That's their next stop. I'll take you to the kitchen. The next stop is the toaster. So everybody who's in the kind of fix-up universe with me makes fun of me because I talk about toasters all the time, but actually our success rate was pretty bad on toasters. <laughs> we failed on a lot, a lot of toasters. So the toaster is the object for the care for it phase, which is Care is repair, maintenance, cleaning, stewardship. It's a really big kind of part of what repair is and a big philosophical thing in the book. And sadly, the toaster is illustrating it a little bit in the negative because we um, overall, we had an 85% success rate for all the objects, but only 65% on appliances. Of those appliance fails, 16% were because parts were unavailable and toasters were a, a... big offender in that category. You can't get heating elements. You can't get the timing switch. You can't get the knobs. You just can't get anything. Um, so in terms of thinking about repair and care and how to get those rates higher, here there's some really sort of complex interplay between individual action policy and businesses where right now all the incentives are backwards. Um, There are some great policies starting, like Sweden did that thing where they gave a tax break to repair shops. France is introducing in January of 21, right now in January, a repairability scorecard on certain products like uh, lawnmowers and certain appliances, and that's pretty exciting. So you'll be able to see, like the way you can see Energy Star, you'll see repairability. So that kind of thing, I think, is really exciting. And when I really think about the toaster of how could we get those toasters to actually be fixable, how could we really scale repair and make it again, make this concept of care part of the economy, I think it's actually like really complicated 
not complicated, but it's, again, it's kind of like our conversation before. You have to have a level of DIY, right? You have to have an ecosystem of people fixing them themselves and repair cafes, small providers like us and appliance repair, and then businesses who provide repair like KitchenAid, and then ultimately big businesses who are beginning to think about repairability and repair. And once we begin to get repair back into the ecosystem at all of those levels, it will start to become more feasible for the individual and, and for businesses to make money doing it. I agree. The plant stand is definitely a good example of me trying to repair something at home and totally failing because the, the object is not made for it. They don't sell parts for it. It would have worked just fine if I had had uh, some sort of support. It's also probably like a, like a, a kind of, perfect storm of like, maybe if you had a really great workshop with the right tools to like cut the leg off and drill a new hole. And like, that's not a level that somebody in their apartment in New York is going to have. No. And, uh, and of course there's no local repair provider to do it for you. And of course you can't take it back to the bigger business. Um, and of course there's no standards or policies supporting you. So it's kind of was like a fail at every level. <laughs> I think that that'll be my last Wayfair purchase for uh, the foreseeable future. It's a good illustration of some of the challenges of care and how, how hard it is, but it is possible. And it's so important that like, so I have a secret bonus item for step four care for it, which is this, my baby's sling that I used to carry them in. And this is related to that chapter in the book where I talk about the artist Mir Lottoman Ukelis and how the work of care in our society is kind of devalued childcare, elder care, repair, subway maintenance, office building, cleaning, like all these forms of care that we kind of underpay, undervalue and, and undersee. So let me do the last object quickly, which is the last step is pass it on. And we'll go in the dining room because there's actually a lot of stuff in here that is, um, that I, that was passed on to me, the shutters, the table, that lamp, these chairs, almost everything. And the concept here that I wanted to talk about is the basic concept is that when you're done with an object, you need to find a way to get it back into either the hands of somebody who can use it or a nutrient cycle where ideally it can be um, taken apart and used in another manufacturing process. This one can be very challenging at the individual level today because as you said earlier, we don't, at least in New York, we don't pay as we throw. We don't pay by the pound for our waste. So we have no incentive to do anything other than throw it away. But it, there are some exciting companies that are beginning to make those reverse logistics of getting things back into circulation easier. So basically, the trip to the dining room is to talk about how important it is to pass things on and also acknowledge that we are missing some pieces of infrastructure from business and from government to support and facilitate and make it easier for people or incentivize that, that activity for them. Yeah, I think that's such a huge part of it. Um, and also, I, I noticed you had a, a piece on your wall there that looks like some reused, reclaimed wood. Is that yeah. accurate? Yeah. Those are, those are a bunch of shutters from Big Reuse. Big Reuse in, uh, are they in Brooklyn now or Queens? They closed one of their locations. Queens. I think they're Queens. in Queens, yeah. So Big Reuse is like an amazing example of a company or organization that is making it possible to do this kind of stuff. Um, by salvaging things, by selling them back to people. So we made these shutters into a wall hanging. Um, App Deco is another company that I think is great, especially for like the less arty and crafty who don't want to schlep out to a dusty warehouse and pick up beautiful shutters. App Deco is a company where they'll deliver, um, you know, you can sell your stuff and buy you stuff online. And those types of organizations, Big Reuse, App Deco, Thread Up, 
all of these places are, it's, it's amazing to watch them building the reverse logistic ecosystem, like as we speak. And it's, it's awesome. Yeah, it's very impressive. Thank you so much, Sandra. Thanks, Phoebe. It's nice to see you. To our listeners, I can't recommend Sandra's book, Fixation, enough. It's a great read. And since it's that time of year, it would also make a wonderful gift for a friend or relative who's interested in these topics. Thank you for talking with me, Sandra, and have a great day. It was so fun talking. Bye.